everyone. Welcome back to the Yukon Internal Medicine Ambulatory Podcast. I'm Katie Klebanoff-Dombrowski, a second-year internal medicine resident, here to discuss this week's topic, chest pain. Today, we'll focus on the differential diagnosis of chest pain, how to risk stratify, scoring systems to help risk stratify in the inpatient versus outpatient setting, and types of stress testing. Part 1 the most common causes of chest pain in the primary care setting. Luckily, acute coronary syndrome, or ACS, is the least common, accounting for only 2-4% of chest pain in the PCP office. This would be our unstable angina, our STEMIs, or our NSTEMIs. Chest wall pain is the most common cause, accounting for 20-50% of patients presenting with this complaint, followed by GERD or esophagitis at 10-20%, and then costochondritis at 13%. It's always important to look at a differential diagnosis by system. We've already discussed MSK, GI, obviously cardiovascular, which is the focus of this lecture, but not to forget pulmonary and those in the other topics. For MSK, costochondritis, 13% of our patients with chest pain, is pretty specific. It's inflammation of the cartilage that connects the ribs to the sternum. This could be compared to Tietze's syndrome. Don't worry, I hadn't heard about it either. It's a rare inflammatory condition that only involves the cartilage between the second and third ribs. Maybe it'll help gain you a point in jeopardy or an additional score on your internal medicine boards. But not to forget muscle strain, trauma, and fracture. For GI, we already mentioned the second most common causes of GERD and esophagitis. We have other esophageal issues as well, including esophageal ruptures and tears, as well as dysmotility disorders and hiatal hernias. Peptic ulcer disease can also cause referred pain to the chest, but it's most commonly described as abdominal pain. Cardiovascular, which is the topic of this conversation predominantly, deals with your MIs, your aortic dissections, angina, heart failure, and of course inflammatory syndromes like pericarditis and myocarditis. For the pulmonary system, luckily, all of the differentials start with P for the most part, pretty convenient, and include pleuritis, pneumonia, pulmonary embolism, pneumothorax, but don't forget acute chest syndrome for the sickle cell disease patients. In the other category, we have panic attacks and herpes zoster. Always important to do a thorough physical exam to make sure there is not a dermatomal rash that it could account for the chest pain. Part two. Part two will hopefully help you develop your differential diagnosis and help risk stratify. In doing so, it's important to focus on risk factors, a complete history and physical, including vitals, and tests. This may or may not mean an EKG, as we'll discuss later. It's helpful to know some common descriptions of chest pain. For example, if someone complains of dull, heavy, tight, or crushing pain, This could point to your angina or typical chest pain. If someone says their pain is epigastric in regions, stabbing, burning, feels like indigestion, that represents more of an atypical chest pain. AECS chest pain, which is your most concerning, is pressure-like, exertional. It may be accompanied by nausea, diaphoresis, and or radiation to one or both arms. People with these features actually have a higher risk of AECS. There's some interesting numbers regarding these statistics. For example, if pain radiates to both arms or shoulders, this represents the highest specificity 
for chest pain, 95.2%. If the chest pain is central, it's the highest sensitivity, 76.8%. If there are acute ischemic EKG changes, however, this has the best positive predictive and negative predictive values, which means it's your best screening exam. It's also really important to know a little bit more about history. For example, there are low-risk features that will make things less worrisome. If the pain is pleuritic, positional, reproducible, non-exertional, these are all very good signs that it's less of an issue or less worrisome. It's always very important to do a good physical exam, including vitals. For example, if the vitals are unstable, you'd send someone directly to the ED. These are values that are high or low, higher low blood pressure, higher low heart rate, low oxygen status. You'd also want to look at blood pressure discrepancy. If there's greater than 20 millimeter mercury difference between both arms, this represents a likelihood ratio of 5.3 of an aortic dissection. This patient should be sent directly to the emergency department. There's an importance of numbers in history to assess for risk factors as well. For example, the median age of ACS in the U.S. is 68 years old. There is a male to female predominance of 3 to 2. And the Framingham Risk Score in the 2013 AHA and ACC looks at the 10-year cardiovascular risk for patients with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, and tobacco use. 88% of patients with acute MI have one or more of these risk factors. 12%, however, do not. So it's very important to never jump to conclusions, as we already know in medicine. We're going to learn later in the podcast that not everyone with chest pain needs an AKG. If an EKG is necessary, then it's important to know how it can help. This is important to remember of any test that we order. Concerning findings on an EKG would include a new left bundle branch block, new T-wave inversions, new ST elevations, ST depressions, or Q-waves. Be sure to review what these look like visually, but I can give you a few quick pointers over this podcast. First off, remember that location on EKG corresponds to anatomical location and the corresponding coronary arteries. Lateral leads are leads 1, AVL, V5 through V6, which correspond to the left circumflex, the diagonal, or the LAD, the Widowmaker. Inferior leads are 2, 3, and AVF, which correspond to the RCA and or the left circumflex. And the anterior septal leads are V1 through V4, which corresponds to the LAD. When you're looking at new ST elevations, this has to be done in the absence of left ventricular hypertrophy or left bundle branch block. We'll talk more about that criteria later. But in terms of new ST elevations, according to the ACC in the AHA, this is a GA point in two or more leads of greater than 2 millimeters or 0.2 millivolts in men or 1.5 millimeters, 0.15 millivolts in women in leads V2 through V3 and or greater than 1 millimeter, 0.1 millivolt, in other contiguous chest leads or limb leads. Just a quick reminder, precordial leads are the same as chest leads. These are leads V1 through V6. Limb leads are leads 1 through 3, AVF, AVR, and AVL. And I know we all know how to count boxes on an EKG, but just for a quick reminder, one small box is 1 millimeter, which equals 0.1 millivolts, which is the same as 0.04 seconds. That means one large box, which is equivalent to five small boxes, equals five millimeters, 0.5 millivolts, 
and 0.2 seconds. We talked about the caveat of not being able to look at new ST changes the same way in people with left ventricular hypertrophy and left bundle branch blocks. How do we assess for left ventricular hypertrophy? We can use something called the Cornell voltage criteria, the Sokolow Lion voltage, or the limb voltage. I'm most accustomed to seeing and using the Cornell voltage. In this criteria, you take the sum of the S wave and V3 and the R wave and AVL. You add them together to get the sum. If it's greater than 20 millimeters in females or 20 small boxes, or 28 millimeters in males, then that's a positive predictor for left ventricular hypertrophy. If somebody has a known left bundle branch block, you'd use something called Scarbosa criteria. You can find this on MD Calc. Again, it's always very important to review the imaging to know how to score this properly. If the score is greater than three, this is very concerning in the setting of a known left bundle branch block for ACS, and you'd send somebody for a PCI. If someone has a known left bundle branch block in the setting of hemodynamic instability, you'd also send them for a PCI. Part three, scoring systems to help us risk stratify. Scoring systems depend on the location of presentation. For example, in the ED, we use the heart scoring system, and in the outpatient setting, we use the interchest system. In the ED, people also use the Timmy or Grace score. You may have heard of these. But heart scoring system is better for predicting major adverse cardiac events or MACE in a six-week period. HART is an acronym. It stands for history, ECG, age, risk factor, and troponin. Each category is assigned points 0 to 2. For example, somebody with non-concerning troponins would get a 0, and someone with troponins greater than 3, the upper limit of normal, would get 2. Once we look at the total of this heart system scoring, 0 to 3 would represent a low risk of major cardiac events, less than 5%. Four to six points would represent an intermediate risk, five to 40%. A score of seven to 10 would be high risk of greater than 40%. As I said earlier, the interchest is used in the outpatient setting. This is appropriate for patients greater than 30 years of age, and this scoring system ranges from negative one to five. A point is given for age greater than 55 years in men and 65 in women pressure-like chest discomfort, exertional pain, and a history of CAD. A point is also assigned to suspicion for a serious condition. Always my least favorite one to score. And then there's a negative one point assigned for reproducibility. So how do these scoring systems help? If it represents less than 5% risk, this would be very low risk and no further testing is warranted including an EKG. If it's a 5 to 70%, this would be intermediate risk and would warrant non-invasive testing, EKGs testing and stress testing. Greater than 70% would warrant an invasive angiography. For example, if you had a 55-year-old male with reproducible non-exertional chest pain in the outpatient setting, you'd use your interchest scoring system this patient would get a zero, negative one for reproducibility and one for his age. This would be 0.3% and no EKG would be warranted. 
But if you had a 65-year-old male with exertional pressure-like pain, they would get a three points, one for each of those categories listed. And this would be 64%. And this would mean they would need stress testing. That leads us to part four, stress testing. Stress testing is a way to assess ischemia. This includes exercise or pharmacologic. Some of the pharmacologic ways would be using adenosine or dipyrimidol. You then monitor either the exercise or the pharmacologic means using EKG, echo, or radionucleotide scanning. EKG would represent our exercise stress test, echocardiography or exercise stress echo, and radionucleotide is the pharmacologic myocardial perfusion imaging or SPEC testing. When should stress testing not be used? EKG stress testing has some contraindications. This includes resting ST segment depressions of greater than or equal to 0.1 millivolts, a complete left bundle branch block, Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, digoxin use, ventricular paced rhythm, or an inability to exercise on a treadmill. This could mean knee pain or an inability to reach a goal of 85% of our age-predicted maximum heart rate. And just a reminder on how to calculate that, that'd be 220 minus age. So for a 40-year-old patient, that would be 180. Then there's some general contraindications, and these are pretty common sense. These represent instability and include our acute MIs, unstable angina, acute cardiac inflammation of any part of the heart, endocarditis, myocarditis, or pericarditis, severe heart failure, severe AS, active PE, severe electrolyte abnormalities, uncontrolled arrhythmias, or second or third AV blocks. And just to wrap it up, quick reminder on identifying second and third degree blocks. Second degree blocks are categorized as MOBITS type 1 or type 2. MOBITS type 1, also known as Wegebach, is going, going, gone, or we see a prolonging PR interval and a dropped QRS. Type 2 shows a fixed PR interval with a dropped QRS. And then a third degree block represents no communication between the atria and the ventricles. And this is where there is discordant communication between the P waves and the QRS. Remember that MOBITS type 2 can lead to a third degree block. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please follow us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. See you next week.